1: everyone, and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Robert Kennedy Jr. was nine years old when his uncle, President Jack Kennedy, was assassinated. He was 14 when his father, Senator Bobby Kennedy, was himself assassinated on the cusp of what was starting to look like a historic victory. For decades, RFK Jr. was himself a hero of the Democratic establishment, advocating on behalf of environmental causes such as reducing pollution in rivers and waterways But when he moved into more controversial areas, such as questions about the safety of vaccines, he became an outlier, the black sheep of the Kennedy family. To many people, his views on vaccines in particular have made him somewhat untouchable. In fact, I'm pretty sure after this interview, I will get messages asking why I'm quote unquote platforming someone who is committed to spreading misinformation. Well. First of all, we don't believe in the concept of no platforming at Unheard. We think it's stupid. Journalists are there to investigate and challenge views. So if this is the way you think, you probably should tune out now. Also, he's running for president, challenging Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination, and is already polling at 20% of voters of the governing party. So it seems a pretty important exercise to try to understand what he really thinks about the world he joins me now. Welcome, Mr. Kennedy. Uh, Thanks for having me. So I absolutely do not want to get bogged down in the vaccines question. It feels like to spend our time litigating that when you're so much on the record about it would be a waste of time, but I feel we have to address it. I notice that it was almost absent from your um, long campaign launch speech. Are, Are you making the decision to talk less about vaccines for for this campaign? And are you being advised to lay it to one side for now?
2: My approach is that I'm not, unless I'm talking to a a group that specifically wants to talk about that issue, like doctors groups or whatever, which I occasionally get invited to, i would say more than occasionally um, i would not lead with this issue so i want you know my I, the issues that i want to lead with are the issues i talked about in my speech um, if somebody asks me about vaccines i'm going to tell them the truth uh, but you know it's an issue that i think uh, most americans are um are not it's not on their there are the top list of issues. And I think, you know, there are a lot of other issues that, that are important and that we ought to be talking about.
1: I guess it's going to sort of plague you somewhat because every interview will start with, you know, there's it's almost like a, a, a something that has to be said now. I saw there was an ABC interview with you that first of all said a few uh, kind of phrases that have become commonplace about vaccines. And then they actually edited out chunks of the interview when you were talking about it, which they thought were misinformation. I guess this would be my question. What would your message be to mainstream Democrats who are interested in some of the things you're saying, but sort of have have made their decision about you based on the vaccines question? And then maybe they're angry with you, maybe they feel it was irresponsible. And you're probably not going to change their mind on the substance between now and the election date. What's your message to those voters?
2: You know, I'm talking about other issues, issues that I think most Ameri- most Americans, and probably most Democrats are concerned about, um, which is the systematic gutting of the middle class, the elevation of, um, of corporations, uh, and, uh, and particularly polluting corporations, and you know, f- from the financial industry, from the military-industrial complex, the. This kind of corrupt merger of state and corporate power, which is uh, systematically hollowing out the American middle class through wars, through you know bank bailouts, through lockdowns, etc., where we're just printing money to make billionaires richer, and uh, you know, the the, uh, the American middle class during the, the COVID lockdown, there was a three a four point four trillion dollar shift in wealth. From the middle, American middle class to this this new oligarchy of, uh, of, of billionaires. We created 500 new billionaires with the lockdown and the billionaires that we already had increased their wealth by 30 percent. Um, that's just one of the assaults. and then you know you go to the bailout of the Silicon Valley Bank uh, and the you know the, the war in Ukraine, which is costing us 113 billion. The war in Iraq and the wars that followed that have cost us $8 trillion. The total cost of the lockdowns was $16 trillion, and we got nothing for any. We didn't get anything for, the, for all those wars we fought. The $8 trillion, we got zero. We got worse than nothing. And the lockdowns, of course, we got nothing for it. So that's $24 trillion in total, and, you know, Is it any wonder that we don't have a middle class left in the United States of America? And unless we rebuild the middle class and rebuild our economy at home, our national security is going to fail and our democracy is failed. You cannot have democracy very long when you've got high concentrations of wealth in the same place with widespread poverty.
1: This word corporatism that uh, you, you're using quite a lot. I guess most people would know not really know what that means. W- what do you mean by it exactly? It's a sense that somehow that the state and big money in the form of corporations have become too close, and you want to put some more space between them.
2: It's the domination of government and particularly democratic
1: democratic governments by
2: corporate power.
1: And what were the what are the examples in your head that are most egregious of that? Well,
2: I could go on about that all day because I've spent forty years litigating against the uh, against the agencies, you know the the regulatory agencies in the United States. So I can tell you that EPA is effectively run by uh, the oil industry, the coal industry, and the pesticide industry when we. Soon, when I, you know, I was on the trial team that brought the Monsanto cases, and we, you know, ended up uh, with a, a $13 billion settlement against after winning three trials. Um, but during those trials, we uncovered through discovery, email traffic going back years that showed that the head of the pesticide division at EPA was secretly working for Monsanto and was running that agency to uh, to promote the mercantile ambitions of that business rather than the public interest. He was killing studies, he was fixing studies, he was ghostwriting studies. And that's, that's true throughout the agencies. I mean, if you look at the pharmaceutical agent, um, industry in our country, it runs FDA. FDA gets 50% of its budget from Big Pharma. Um, the CDC spends half of its budget purchasing vaccines from Big Pharma and then distributing it. So it is a partner. And NIH uh, essentially is just an incubator for new pharmaceutical products. It, it doesn't really do the kind of basic research that we want them to be doing about where are all these diseases, these chronic diseases and, and allergic diseases coming from, and autoimmune disease and neurological disease. Why are we seeing this explosion? Now, those kind of studies don't get done studies that do get done are studies that develop pharmaceutical products, and then NIH collects royalties when the pharma company sells those products. You have the regulator that, you know, is essentially a partner with the regulated industry. Um, The the DOT is run by the railroads in our country and by the airlines. Uh, The banks have utterly corrupted the SEC. um, And, you know, of course, And the media has corrupted the FEC.
1: With all these different examples, um, is it your sense, and I'm trying to draw a distinction here, between actual corruption? I mean, do you feel like there are individuals within these agencies who are improperly, maybe even illegally, benefiting from these kind of corporate ties? Or is it more of a general sense that they come from the same kind of class, there's a revolving door between those positions, and they tend to sign up to the same way of viewing the world? It's both. you know, I mean,
2: it, it's it's legal legalized bribery and illegalized bribery. It's both things. and they and you know, they get rewarded when they leave. I mean the the rules governing conflicts of interest are just ignored. And that's illegal, but they're just systematically ignored. And then, you know, the rules started out not strong enough to really protect the public interest. Oh, you you have both things going on. You have honest, you know, you have what they call honest graft and dishonest
1: graft. So this sounds like a very kind of a traditional left of center critique of of these kinds of bodies. But you're now being accused of being right wing, or there's some confusion about, you know, where, where you come from politically. Do you, do you think concepts of left and right are less useful than they used to be? Do you think there's a kind of horseshoe happening within politics?
2: Well, I would say this that I consider myself a traditional Kennedy liberal. I don't know any of the values that my uncle John Kennedy um, harbored or my, uh, my father shared that I don't share. So you know they were, um, and they were, they had antipathy and uh, and suspicion of of war and the military-industrial complex. They did not want corporations running the American government. Um, they were completely against censorship. Uh, they were they were against the use of fear as a governing tool, and they spoke out of about it often. Um, And you go down the list of the things that they believe in, and I don't think that there's really any daylight between me and what they believed. Uh, So uh, I would say it's traditional liberal, but I do think that there is a growing coalition of the left and right in our country, of populist forces on the left and right that are convening now and that are, you know, finding common ground. And I think that that really is probably the only thing that is going to rescue american democracy
1: so you're quite open about hoping to get interest from potentially conservative voters as well is is that uh, you know what i always have
2: been when i i spent 35 years is probably the leading and arguably, you know, and I don't want to toot my own horn, but as arguably the leading environmentalist in the country. And I was the only environmentalist who was going on Fox News constantly on Sean Hannity, on Neil Cavuto, on Bill O'Reilly, on Tucker Carlson. And people would say to me, you're legitimizing those platforms by going on there. And I said, I'm not. Give it, I'm, a, I'm not compromising my values when I go on there. I'm talking to their audiences, and I want to speak to their audiences. How are we going to persuade people? How are we going to end the polarization if we're not talking to each other? Oh, so I'll go on any you know I'll go on any platform. The only platforms I won't go on are ones that you know my wife just uh, can't live with. Oh, so, but I. You know, if it was up to me, I would go on Steve Bannon and I would go on, you know, I would even go on Alex Jones um, because I, I want to talk to those audiences. And I, you know, I think there, there's a rebellion happening in our country now. There's a populist rebellion. And if we don't capture that rebellion or the, you know, for the, for the forces of idealism, and for the, force, the forces of generosity and kindness and, you know, and making our country an exemplary nation, again, somebody else is going to co- co- take the hijack that rebellion for much darker purposes. And, uh, and I don't think it's a good idea to say we're not going to talk to American populace because they're deplorable you know, they're Americans, they're There are brothers and sisters, and we need to listen to them and their backs are against the wall because of policies that have come down from both Republican and Democratic parties.
1: One name that you, you didn't mention there, but is being talked about quite a lot at the moment is uh, Tucker Carlson, who obviously lost his job in the last week, but he tends to surprisingly agree with you about quite a lot of things, even though he's thought of as a right wing conservative. What is your view of Tucker Carlson?
2: I think Tucker is now, at this point, and, you know, by the way, there was nobody during most of his career who was more uh, critical of Tucker Carlson than I am of his policies. I would still go on his show because I want to talk to his audience. Uh, But I think uh, Tucker has evolved over the past three years into probably one of the leading populist voices in our country. So, uh, and, you know, he's talking, he's one of the only people on American uh, television that's talking about free speech it is extraordinary because it used to be when I was growing up that the people who were most militant, who were the first amendment absolutists, were they were journalists and, you know, journalists do not seem, the average American journalist seems not the least bit concerned by government orchestrated censorship today. It's very, very strange.
1: Obviously you are trying to win the democratic nomination in, is there any world, in which you would um, actually do some kind of deal with Tucker Carlson? I mean, it's been speculated, there could be a surprise cross party ticket involving both of your names. Is that something you would? Ever- yeah, I,
2: I would not. I wouldn't speculate a, a, about any of that. I can't see Tucker Carlson running as a Democrat, and I'm running as a Democrat.
1: And is it worth saying if you're not successful in the primary, whether you would consider running as an independent? or? And I, I intend to
2: be successful. I don't have a plan
1: b one um, there are some issues I guess where you and someone like Tucker Carlson might still disagree quite strongly. Um, I don't have a very strong sense of your views on on the some of the more cultural worry issues uh, you know issues of gender, for example, I know you've said that um, you believe biological males should not compete in women's sport but Is your view generally that the the Democratic Party has become too, quote unquote, woke on those things and has lost sight of reality? Or or do you take a more mainstream Democrat position?
2: Uh, You know, I I would not. uh, I'm not going to cast judgment on, you know, on a kind of a generalized description of the Democratic Party or where it is today. If you ask me what I feel about an issue, I'm happy to talk about it. I feel like, you know, we should take a common sense approach to, to these issues and, um, and, you know, to all issues. And and by the way, I, you know, I don't even feel there's a lot of issues that I would have nothing to do with this president and that are very divisive. And there's no reason um, for me to comment on them because I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out ways to, uh, to find, you know, to to emphasize the values that we have in common, rather than the issues that are tearing our country apart. So I don't feel the need to to take a position on every issue. And if it's an issue that I will have nothing to do with on a federal, you know, as president, then I'm not uh, very unlikely to take a position on it.
1: Let, Let me be specific, then the concept of equity, which President Biden talks about a lot is, is the idea that And it's really quite central to his ideas about governing, which is that racial and other minority groups should be kind of retrofitted into positions um, via quota rather than just through a normal meritocratic process. And it needs that extra um, effort. Do do you agree with the principle of equity or do you take a more?
2: I I wouldn't agree. I I wouldn't agree with the um, the the policy that you just described. I think, you know, my family has been deeply involved in the civil rights movement and I've been involved with um, with environmental justice issues. My first case was representing the NAACP. In 2001, I spent the entire summer in maximum security prison in Puerto Rico uh, for a civil disobedience that I did in, in, in conjunction with a case that I brought defending the poorest um, Black and Hispanic uh, population in America, probably arguably the population of Vieques. I've brought uh, probably as many environmental justice cases during my career as anybody else, and I understand. Um, that you know there is institutional racism in our country. It, you know you see it in many police departments, although not all of them, and certainly not all police are are racist. But it is a huge problem. Uh, but also, you know, the the, the uh, blacks in our country are living not only with the legacy of slavery, but the legacy of of another hundred years of Jim Crow, and uh, you know of, of having their leaders systematically murdered. Um, on 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 a on level, you know on a local level, on and on national level, and those are thing. And then being redlined, being you know, uh, in the two thousand eight, um, uh, securities mortgage securities collapse. It was it was black homeowners who were targeted first by those banks and who work and whose equity, those communities were robbed of equity at that point, when we closed all of the community hospitals in our country, again, in the mid 2000s, it was black communities with closed. So I think we need to, you know, we need to figure out ways uh, to make sure that those communities are participating in the American experiment with
1: I guess the, the the question really, and I do think it's an important philosophical one for a potential president is, Is the best way to address those inequalities through trying to improve equality of opportunity, which would be a more classical liberal, I suppose, viewpoint? Or do you think, um, for example, let's be really specific, when the President announced that he was going to find an African American female to fill the latest Supreme Court vacancy before having started the selection process, did that make you uncomfortable in a as you call it traditional Kennedy liberal sense that it wasn't an open meritocratic choice, or did you feel actually, yes, that is the right thing to do?
2: Well, you know, I listen, I, I'm not gonna second guess President Biden on that choice. I, I can say again that I've sat for 20 years on the board of Bedford Stuyvesant Restoration, which was the, the, the first community development corporation in our country, and I watched that. By, by bringing capital and and bringing mentorship into one of the poorest Black communities in this country, we saw a renaissance in in Bedford-Stuyvesant because of that. And I think that you know um, uh, uh, Black Americans want. They want you know want rep- want to feel represented, and I think a black child ought to be look- able to look at our cabinet and our courts and be able to see people that they you know uh, a possibility of positions that they can aspire to. But I also think that our real target needs to be getting capital into those communities, getting home ownership more widespread in those communities, which is again a source of capital and uh, reducing crime, crime, making healthcare available, and all of those things that will invite black Americans into the American experience.
1: Let me ask you about um, climate and the environment, which is a, a lifelong issue for you. And um, it's been interesting to observe in the last few years, in particular, how that has shifted from being an anti establishment position to care deeply about those things and feel like it's the number one priority to a pretty this kind of establishment, maybe even corporate endorsed position. Um, do you think there is a sort of good version of the green movement, and a more corporate sort of Davos style version of the green movement? And and how would you distinguish between them, if so?
2: Yeah, I would say definitely that that's happened that, you know, um, climate has become polarized, even more polarized than ever, and polarized, um, and with good reason, I think that it's, you know, that the, uh, the crisis has been to some extent co-opted uh, by Bill Gates, by the World Economic Forum, and all the, you know, the crowd, the Billionaires' Boys Club in Davos, um, in the same way that the COVID crisis was appropriated by them to make themselves richer, to impose totalitarian controls on society, um, and to, uh, and to uh, stratify our society with you know with a group of very very powerful and wealthy people at the top and then you know the vast majority of of human beings with very little power and uh, very little sovereignty over their own lives and every crisis is an opportunity for those forces to clamp down controls and then you also see with climate that a lot of there's been a shift from habitat preservation, from uh, from uh, regenerative farming uh, to um, and and trying to reduce uh, the power of the carbon industry, which is also spewing toxics. You know, we need to reduce carbon, whether you believe in. Uh, in climate change or not, because anywhere there's carbon, there's also mercury, there's ozone particulates, there's aluminum, there's all these other kind of really horrible toxins that come from uh, burning hydrocarbons. But what you're seeing is a shift away from those concerns and more towards carbon carbon capture, which uh, you know is a, is a can be monetized by the corporations and exploited without seeing any real benefit on the ground. Um, and also geoengineering solutions, which I oppose. And if you look at the kind of geoengineering solutions that are being pushed, um, they, it, it tends to be the people who are pushing them also have IP uh, rights, in other words, patent rights, in a lot of those technologies. And, um, and there is definitely an optic of self-interest and a self-serving uh, commitment.
1: We had one example here in Europe recently, which were the farmers protests taking place in the Netherlands, because there were environmental rules that came into place about using nitrate fertilisers and so on, that were very severe and were adhered to for the kind of populist, frankly, the kind of voters who might be interested in you, they were very angry about it, and they they took to the streets. And there was this sense that the, the environmental policy wasn't actually paying attention to ordinary people's economic reality. Did you observe that? And you, where would
2: you uh, go on that? You know, I I fell on the side of the farmers in that debate because I saw what happened over the years, which I've been fighting, which is that the the increase the 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 power of corporations and this combination of corporate and and uh, government power, which colluded to get those farmers to switch over to. Uh, heavily nitrate, fertilizer-dependent farming, and chemical-dependent farming. And that was a deliberate, systematic, and GMO farming. And that was deliberate, it was purposeful, and systematic. And so once you get all of those farmers to switch to hydrocarbon-based fertilizers and to monocultures, then you say, okay, those things are bad, and now we're going to shut you all down. So that is what happened. And, you know, I had a a long conversation on my podcast about this issue with Vandana Shiva, who felt the same way, took the same position I did, that this is a patent switch, this is a way of destroying the small farmers, and if we want to have democracy... We need a broad ownership of our land by, you know, by a a, a wide variety of of yeoman farmers, each with a stake uh, in our system. That's what Thomas Jefferson said, and wiping out the small farmers and giving control of food production to corporation is not in the interest of humanity. You know, we need to help those farmers transition off the addiction that we imposed upon them in the first place.
1: Another issue related to that, which I guess leads us into the Ukraine issue, is the nuclear issue, because that again, having been a to be against nuclear such as you've been for decades, has been a sort of anti-establishment position. And now suddenly it feels like it's flipping because countries like Germany that have been so strong on on, on shutting down all their nuclear power are finding themselves vulnerable in that they're overly dependent on Russian gas. And it's now being viewed as an error. I mean, what's your view on that? Have your views evolved on nuclear?
2: No, I mean, my views have always been the same on nuclear. I'm all for nuclear if they can make it safe and if they can make it economic. Right now, it is literally the most expensive way to boil a pot of water that has ever been devised. We were told that nuke energy would be too cheap to meter and actually it is uh, it's so expensive that no utility in the world will uh, will build a nuclear power plant without vast public subsidies by the taxpayer. And then uh, in our country, we had to pass the Price Anderson Act because you know I say uh, nuke is dangerous, it's just dangerous. And it's, it's too dangerous for humanity. Look at Fukushima, you know, look at what is happening there. Now there is, there's a, there is so much water, contaminated water that is pouring out and contaminating the entire Pacific ocean. They're finding those, the radiation and fishes all over the ocean. And the only solution is for them to pump the water into these huge tanks and then store it forever. And if you go look at the picture of Fukushima now, there are these giant, vast tanks that just go on as far as the eye can see. Look at Chernobyl now. You know, you may say, "Well, there's new forms of new power that are safer," which I would say is not true. But but it, don't listen to me. Listen to the insurance industry. Listen to A AI, AIG
0: and Lloyd's of London and.
2: Ask them, would you ever uh, insure one of these plants? And they won't. So, you know, until they can buy an insurance policy, they shouldn't be saying it's safe. an uh, in insurance. In our country, they had to go in in a sleazy legislative maneuver in the middle of the night and pass the Bryce Anderson Act, which, absol- which shifts the burden of their accidents onto the public. And so, you know, it's not hippies and tie-dyed t-shirts who are saying it's dangerous. It's guys on Wall Street with suits and and ties who are saying, this is is too dangerous. This is so dangerous that they can't get an insurance policy. And then they have to store the stuff at taxpayer expense for the next 30,000 years, which is five times the length of recorded human history. How can that ever be economic? If they had to internalize the cost nobody would ever build one of these plants nobody would there's nobody in the world you know to build a, a solar plant a gigawatt of solar now costs about a billion dollars to build a new plant it's between nine and 16 billion for one gigawatt for the same thing so it's 16 to nine to 16 times for the capital expense and then you have to get the uranium that you know you have to have these regular outages for maintenance.
1: I just, in in European context anyway, France that has such a lot of nuclear is sitting quite pretty now with this uh, Russia situation whilst Germany has had to restart its coal-fired plants.
2: Well, my solution to that is stop making oil wars.
1: That takes us into this pressing question. One thing that you talk about a lot in your interviews, in your speeches, is America being in a permanent state of war and how you want to put an end to that. Um, with regard to Ukraine, how do you propose to do that?
2: Uh, settle it. I mean, the, the Russians have, have repeatedly offered to settle. And particularly, you know, if you look at the Minsk Accords, um, which the, the Russians, you know, uh, offered to settle for, um, they, uh, that looks like a really good deal today. Oh, you know, it's it's. I mean, let's be honest. This is a U.S. war against against Russia for geopolitical reasons that have been, you know, these geopolitical machinations that have been going on since 2014 with the the intelligence agencies and the neocons, and to, to essentially sacrifice the flower of Ukrainian youth in a, in an abattoir of death and destruction. For the geopolitical ambition of the neocons, off-stated of deposing, Vlad- of regime change for Vladimir Putin, and of exhausting the Russian military so that they can't fight anywhere else in the world, and you know, and that, and and President Biden has said that that was his intention to depose, to get rid of uh, Vladimir Putin. His secretary of defense, Lloyd Austin, in April 2022 said, our, you know, our purpose here is to exhaust the Russian army. Well, what does that mean? Exhaust. It means throwing Ukrainians at them. And, you know, the, the, the young, my son fought over there side by side with the Ukrainians. And, you know, it, it, we're, we've sacrificed 300,000 Ukrainians. The commander of the special forces unit in the Ukraine, which is probably the most elite and you know the, the best fighting force in Europe, arguably, has said that 80% of his troops are dead, or or wounded, and that they cannot rebuild the unit. Uh, right now, right now, Russians are killing Ukrainians at a rate a, a ratio of either one to five or one to eight, depending on what data you believe
1: if you became president, you would inherit the situation as it is. Um, so although there might be missteps in the past that you regret, the situation as it is that both sides are very dug in public opinion in most of Ukraine is now very violently against Russia and, and vice versa. There is a, a front, what would the policy actually be to, to basically say, territory that Russia has already conquered, they can keep and would you would then be accused of surrendering?
2: Well, with, you know, what I'm accused of is irrelevant to me, as you may have figured out by now. Um, the, You know, let's do what's sensible, no matter what I'm accused of. Let's do what makes sense, what saves lives. This was supposed to be a humanitarian mission. That's how they sold it to us in the United States. But that would imply that the purpose of the mission was to reduce bloodshed and to shorten the conflict. And every step that we've taken has been to enlarge the conflict and to maximize bloodshed. That's not what we should be doing. If you look at the Minsk Accords, it it sets the groundwork for a final settlement in the Minsk Accords. Uh, The the Donbass region, which is 80% ethnic Russian and and Russians that were being systematically killed by the Ukrainian government, would become autonomous within Ukraine and would be protected. And I would say, you know, let's protect those populations with a United Nations force or whatever we have to do to make sure the bloodshed stops. Um, in addition to that, we need to remove our Aegis missile systems from, which can, can, you know, can house the Tomahawk missiles, the nuclear missiles, 70 miles from the Russian border, When the Russians put nuclear missiles on our, in Cuba, you know, 1,500 miles from Washington, D.C. Um, we were ready to invade them, and we would have invaded them if they hadn't removed them. So, you know, and the way they got removed, ultimately, is my uncle and, and father, made a deal with Ambassador Don and Khrushchev, who they had a close relationship with and they could talk directly to at that point. And they said, and the deal was, we will remove our Jupiter missiles from Turkey on your border because we know that's intolerable to you. Russia has been invaded twice in the previous hundred years with the, the vast cost that we can't even comprehend in the United States. And one could see why they wouldn't want U.S. nuclear missile systems in hostile countries on their border. We would all, we would all, we should also agree to keep the to keep NATO out of the Ukraine, which is what the Russians have asked. And I think, based upon those three points, we could probably I, somebody like me could settle this war. I don't think the neocons are capable of settling it. And the people who surround President Biden, I don't think they're capable of because they were the ones who created the problems. And I don't think they'll ever recognize that. And I think part of a, you know, a Russian settlement is to recognize that, that you know, um, some of the, um, the, the, you know, some of this history that went into this war with them, you know, with the geopolitical machination on both sides. And by the way, I am not excusing or justifying uh, Vladimir Putin's barbaric and illegal invasion of the Ukraine. I'm just saying we need to figure out a way. You know, my uncle always said, if you want to to actually achieve peace, you've got to put yourself in the other guy's shoes. And you got to figure out the the pressures, the local pressures on him
1: too. I mean, you you mentioned the Cuban Missile crisis there and, and your uncle's strategy you could look at that another way, which is that he stared them down with that. I mean, it was a very frightening moment. Would the the ships turn around? He played chicken and he won in a sense with, with that standoff. But there was a real sense that facing that kind of aggression, you have to take a firm stand. And I think it's not just corporate interest. There are lots of good people who feel about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that it is just such a moment and that somehow a stand needs to be taken and he can't be rewarded for it, rather like your uncle did at the Cuban Missile Crisis. What do you say to those people? Well, you know,
2: you can I can argue the history of it. And I can also argue my uncle while he was, uh, that his he was surrounded by a military by Joint Chiefs of Staff by an intelligence apparatus that was trying to get him to go to war. And the fact that there was one confrontation where the Russian ship that was carrying supplies to Cuba um, stopped before it hit the kind of the, you know the, the the embargo wall of U.S. Uh, of U.S. ships. That wasn't the end of the crisis. That was just a midpoint, and it could have gone anywhere from there. And the the end of the crisis happened because my uncle reached out to Khrushchev directly and said let's settle this between ours and their Their settlement was secret. And it remained secret for many years. <laughs> but my uncle wanted to settle it. And he understood that he had to put himself in Khrushchev's position and that Khrushchev didn't want war and neither did he. But they were both surrounded by people who did want to go to war.
1: But what's, what is the wise equivalent thing that the US president should have done when Russian tanks that are rolling across Ukrainian borders in three different directions headed to well, the I mean, capital.
2: Well, I we should have listened, uh, maybe, to Putin over many years. You know, we we made a commitment to Russia to Gorbachev that we would not move NATO one inch to the east. So, you know, why did we? Then we went in and we lied. We went into 13 NATO countries. We put. Missile systems and that with nuclear that with nuclear capacity, we um, we did joint exercises with the Ukraine and these others from NATO. What is the purpose of NATO? In NATO, this is what you know. George Kennan asked. This is what uh, what Jack Matlock asked. All of the you know the doyens of U.S. foreign policy are saying, Russia lost the Cold War. Let's do to Russia for Russia what we did to uh, to Europe when we gave them the Marshall Plan. We're the victors. Let's help them, lift them up. Let's integrate them into European society.
1: So you would have had Russia I, inside NATO.
2: I, I think that that's something we should have considered. I, you know, what is the purpose of NATO other than to oppose Russia? And if you're if you're if you if you're addressing Russia hostily from the beginning. Of course, their um, their reaction is going to be a hostile reaction back. And if you're slowly moving in, so that all of these states who we said would never be become part of NATO, were suddenly become part of NATO. You know, and and then you know, and we know what happened in the Ukraine, in the U.S. Um, supported a essentially a coup d'etat in 2014 against the democratically elected government of, of Ukraine. And we put in place and we now have you know the, the telephone call transcripts of Victoria Newland, one of the neocons in the White House then handpicking the new cabinet that was hostile to the Soviet Union. And so you know if you if you look at that and you put yourself in Russia's position and you say, okay, the United States, our biggest enemy, that's treating us as an enemy, has now taken over the government of a nation that it, and made them hostile to us, and then start you know, passing laws that are prejudicial to this, this giant Russian population. If Mexico did that and then started killing, they killed 14,000 Russians and dumped us, the, the Ukrainian government. If Mexico did that to expatriate Americans, we'd invade in a second. So you know, I think we have to we have to put ourselves in the shoes of our opponents, and it doesn't mean saying that Vladimir Putin is not a gangster. He is, that he's not a thug. He is, that he's not a bully. He is, but it, going to war is not in his interest either. And he repeatedly told us these are red lines you're crossing. The
1: the challenge is that we are where we are now, and w- day by day that news emerges of some of the atrocities happening inside the russian controlled parts of ukraine and the idea that it's going to slip back to peaceful minsk style accords is maybe not realistic at this point so should we take it from what you're saying that in, in practice that means your support for nato as president would be different to what you know
2: I don't know what I but that is something that I'm gonna look at as president. I'm gonna look at how do we de-escalate tensions between the great powers, between China, between the United States and Russia. And you know, how do we how do we let how do we let these countries deal with their neighbors in a way without pressure from the United States that that you know makes them feel like they're gonna to have to go into a military mode? And I'm not saying that what happened here, I'm saying that's something that we need to, to look at. And the reason that we need to look at that is we have institutional problems in our country where the, and this my something my uncle s- discovered in 1960, 61, um, when he said, it, what he realized during the Bay of Pigs crisis is that the CIA had devolved into an agency whose function was to provide the military industrial complex with a, a constant pipeline of new wars. And my uncle came out of one of those meetings as the Bay of Pigs invasion collapsed and he said, and he realized the CIA had lied to him and he fired ultimately Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA, Charles Cabell, Richard Bissell, the three top people of the CIA for lying to him. But he said, at that time, I want to take the CIA and shatter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the wind. We have to recognize that, you know, it's not just our civilian agencies that have been captured by industry, the military agencies, the Pentagon, and particularly the intelligence agencies have been captured by the military industrial complex. And, you know, and we have to recognize that and we have to say, OK, we don't want constant wars in our country. We can't afford them.
1: So do you see do you see yourself finishing but, the job they started? Then do you want to take the CIA and shatter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the wind? I
2: think, I think the CIA needs to be
1: uh, reorganized
2: in a way. But, you know, most of the people who work at the CIA are patriotic Americans. They're very very good um, public servants, and we need them to function. But I think we really need to separate um, the espionage. Functions of that agency and the Plans Division, the division that actually does dirty tricks, that kills people, that makes wars, that you know, um, that in, it, that it involves itself in actions because you can't. Because what happens is that tail, that the the um, the operations tale begins to. Wag the espionage dog. And the term espionage means basically information gathering and analysis, and that is the function that we want. That the that the CIA was created to perform. Uh, and very very early on, Alan Dulles essentially you know, corrupted the purpose of it by by getting the CIA involved in you know assassinations and fixing elections and all. Well, the CIA has been involved now in fixing about, in in coup d'etats or attempted coup d'etats in about a third of the countries in the world, most of them democracy. So our national policy as a country is to promote democracy. The CIA's policy has been the opposite and it has been at odds with the United States. So, and I think part of that, my father recognized this too, his plan was to reorganize the cia along those lines to separate the espionage and the analysis and information gathering functions um from the you know the black functions because otherwise the func- the, the the espionage section sees its job as justifying all of these uh, uh you know these nefarious uh activities they're involved in and there's no accountability. So there's never any accountability. And they do, you know, you overthrow a government in Iraq and what happens, you create ISIS. You then get involved in Syria from ISIS and you drive 2 million uh, civilian or 2 million refugees into Europe, which destabilizes democracy all over Europe and basically causes Brexit. And that is the, you know, that's the outcome of a, of a of what the CIA considers a successful operation to depose Saddam Hussein, is it really successful? I don't think so. And and unfortunately, you know, we we have a sixty-year war with Iraq, and that war began when the CIA overthrew the first democratically elected government in the six thousand-year history of Persia, and we are still living with the blowback from that operation. And there's no no accountability and these agencies need to be accountable. And I would break up the CIA in a way that would make them accountable.
1: If I could just ask more generally, the way you talk about the CIA, the way you talk about a lot of these agencies, emphasizing, as you put it, that people have been lied to, that the heads of these people are, that these organizations are corrupt, that the media is corrupt. At the same time, you talk about how you want to bring people together and you're worried about how divided society is, is there not a sense that your rhetoric is divisive in that it, 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 leads, it leads people to believe that a big chunk of their own country is kind of against them? There's like an enemy within in the RFK worldview, and that needs to be destroyed. Is, how do you respond to that sense? The way
2: that you bring people together is by telling people the truth and getting them to agree on facts. If I'm wrong in any of the facts I told you, you, you should challenge me. You know, oh, and other people should challenge me. Because I really, I th- feel that my job is to search for empirical truths. And then to be honest with people about it. And because you can't, you know, if you, if you try to censor people, if you try to lie to them about what's happening, that our government is broken. If you try to lie about that, it just divides them further. You have to acknowledge, okay, there's a problem. And you know, I'm a former drug addict. And the first thing that you do, you know, if you want to deal with drug addiction, is you admit there's a problem, and then you can deal with everything. And we need to admit there's a problem in our government before um, before we uh, before we're able to heal it, and you know, before we're able to heal our country.
1: The the rot, I guess, in your sense of things goes deep and wide. We're talking about big swathes of the government, as well as the media, heads of corporations. It almost feels a little bit like a revolution when you talk about it, because there must be many, many thousands of people who are in positions of power, who you would want out. Do you think of it as a revolution?
2: I think of it as a,
1: that yeah, like we need a revolution, I would say that
2: but a peaceful revolution, and a revolution that, um, you know, that uh, brings us back to our the values that have been robbed from us you know, over the past 40 years, systematically through you know, and uh, that I watched happen. I mean, I was watching what happened in 1980. And we had a functioning government there, and we were in the middle of the great prosperity, and we had you know most Americans trusted the government, and um, and we all trusted the media. And today, 22% of people, Americans trust their government, 22% trust the media, and the reason we have all this blizzard of misinformation, what is called misinformation, is because people are looking for other sources of information that they can actually trust, because the the people who are supposed to be giving us good information are not. It's, it's, It's spin, it's propaganda. It's uh, government orchestrated, and uh, and people know it. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows we were lied to about COVID. Everybody knows we were lied to about Vietnam. Everybody knows we were lied to about Iraq, weapons of mass destruction. You know, it's not this. My opinion about these agencies is not happening in a vacuum. Everybody knows that Pharma lied to us about opioids, and about Vioxx. You know, I mean, I, these are not like things that. Our conspiracy theories that, you know, Robert Kennedy is crazy because he thinks a, a corrupted FDA, you know, helped uh, the pharmaceutical companies uh, create the opioid crisis. This, this is a fact that is well known, well documented, and that happened. And the question is, how are we going to stop it from happening again? And the answer to that is we got to start by telling the truth about it.
1: My final question to you, Mr. Kennedy, is we started with vaccines and in a way it brings it back to that. Do you think you went too far at any stage? And I'm offering this almost as an opportunity to say to Democrats who might be interested in you, but be freaked out by some of the vaccine stuff. Is there any sense in which you yourself, by fighting so hard on these things, might have lost perspective, might have gone in, gone down the wormhole too far, might have not been confronted or aware of the truth yourself? Do you, do you feel that there's a, a danger? that? Here,
2: here, here's what I would say. Show me where I got it wrong. Show me one fact that I've said in, you know, all of my social media uh, uh, postings, that was factually erroneous. And if you if you show me that you know what I'm going to do, I'm going to fix it, I'll change it. And if I if it's appropriate, I'll apologize for it. But, you know, that's not what's happened. What's happened is the media has said, oh, he passes misinformation. And when I say what what piece of misinformation, show me one thing that I've ever posted on this subject that is factually incorrect. Everything I post is cited and sourced to government databases and to peer-reviewed publications. You know, I I have probably the most robust fact-checking operation in America today. I have 320 MD physicians and PhD scientists, including until recently Nobel Prize winner uh, Luke Montagnier on our advisory board, looking at everything I post. If I get something wrong, you know, and I I will ultimately get something wrong, but I but so far nobody's been able to show me anything that I've got wrong. And I, I wrote a book on Anthony Fauci that was the biggest bestseller in America for a year, not reviewed anywhere, not acknowledged, but nevertheless. It's almost it's two hundred and forty thousand words. and uh, and nobody's been able to find a and I invite people at the beginning. And by the way, every there's twenty two hundred citations, every one of them with a uh, with a a barcode on it, so that you can go, if you got your telephone there, you can look up the citation while you read the book. I invite people. I invite people at the beginning. Show me anything I got wrong, and you know we've had twelve or fifteen editions, and so if there was something wrong, we would create it. We would correct it. But, you know, I don't
1: want to. Sounds like an, an invitation to a second session, maybe that we can have later in the campaign, where we can get stuck I'm into the detail of some of the science.
2: Happy to talk about it anytime.
1: You've talked a lot today about the corruption of America, its foreign policy missteps, its internal problems, its internal corruptions. Do you think a good version of America is even achievable anymore?
2: Yeah, I do think it's achievable. and I think it's achievable very quickly. And but I think we need a uh, we need somebody in there who can do what and I you know this is going to sound immodest but I think only I can do it at this point because I know how to fix these agencies because I've spent so many years litigating against them so they don't intimidate me I know in many cases. Who the bad apples are, who the individuals are, who have who have um, misguided it, but I also just uh, i've I've spent my most of my career studying uh, you know the problem of how do you unravel a um, a corrupt agency? How do you fix it? And you know I'm very excited about doing that for my country, and I think, my ultimate ambition is to restore, you know, the faith and the love of America and the pride in America that my children can grow up with the kind of pride that I felt about my country, and I can restore our moral authority around the world, and um, and you know, restore the reputation of America as an exemplary nation as something that the rest of the world can look to as an example, and you know, will want to. Uh, that don't want to copy rather than, you know, a threat. You know, my uncle believed um, that America should be a leader, but we should not be a bully. And people understand the difference between those two things. And because my uncle steadfastly avoided war and instead said, I don't want the, 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 the picture of Americans around the world to be somebody with a gun. I want it to be a Peace Corps volunteer. I want it to be the Kennedy Milk Program in all the countries in Latin America and Africa. USAID which was you know which was built to uh, to build to to foster the growth of middle class in those countries and the Alliance for Progress. And because of that people around the world um, you know, love John Kennedy more than any president in our history. There's more boulevards named after him, more avenues, more statues to him, more universities and hospitals in Africa and Latin America and all over the world than any other U.S. president. And, uh, And that's because he, you know, he had a different vision that was not based on conquering people but on helping
1: them. Robert Kennedy, thanks for talking to us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: That was Robert F. Kennedy Jr., challenger to Joe Biden to be the Democratic candidate in 2024. For those of you who were hoping we were going to get into the vaccines debate or some of the other COVID controversies, perhaps we'll do that later in the campaign. For now, we wanted to get a broader sense of what his offer was, how it fitted into the political spectrum and the way he thinks about his country in the world. Hope you found it interesting. This was Unheard.